Welcome to the Scratch Cast. Hi, Craig. Hey, Mick. Doing good? I am. You? Yeah, I'm doing uh, great. Uh, I know we talked about it before, but I have Modelo in hand. You do. Modelo drink- Especial. <laughs> You're drinking your wife's beer tonight? Yeah, I am. She's gracious enough. Well, the thing is that this could very well be a margarita. It could be. But, <laughs> you know, it's not a bad beer. I do enjoy the Modelo. Uh, yeah, I like it too, and... You know, if it were a margarita, these mics might be... There might be a lot of dead air <laughs> and police sirens. Do you uh, drink your margarita margarita mm-hmm. with salt on the rocks? Oh, yeah. I yeah. Plus, no, um, yeah, rocks. Yeah, I guess it would be rocks because I don't... I don't You're like not a blended guy, are you? I like no. blended, but our fridge just as crushed. <clears throat> so now you're getting little tiny gotcha. bits of ice. That's good. And I'd rather just kind of fight off the cubes. But mm-hmm. I, uh, yeah, I'll put some salt on top. Okay. That's Absolutely. Good. Get away with these headphones. Um, so yeah, we are pretty much free-forming it today. I know that uh, a lot of people have asked about um, the gear that I use. Uh, I know gear is a big thing for a lot of people. For me, I've always thought of my gear as tools. Mm-hmm. I've never, you know, had an amp that was in the corner and don't look at it, don't touch it. Right. I never play it. I'm not that guy, man. I beat things up. You know, my in fact, my, my Silver Burst Les Paul, which I've wanted, I've told you the story the other day, maybe we'll tell it later on. Um, that Silver Burst that I have was like a dream. And I just, a couple of weeks ago at a rehearsal... It fell off one of the strap locks and landed on my Oof. pedal board. Now it's got dings all over it, right? And, right. and you know, someone might go home and cry. Someone might be bothered about that for weeks. For me, it's just like, oh, fuck. Why did that have to happen right now? But <laughs> now I'm over it. Yeah. And, you know, it's aged. Gives it some character. Thank you. Me, personally, I like the nicks and the dings. and the, It shows, character, like I said, character of the instrument and has a story to tell. You're using it. Yes. It's being used. It's not exactly. sitting on a pedestal right. somewhere, you know? So anyway, that's the way I've always treated my gear. If it's banged up a little bit, it doesn't bother me. Um, and I'm rough on everything. For God's sake, the belt, my favorite belt, <laughs> is falling apart in so many different ways. I literally have to like reconstruct it every time I put right. it on now. Like that old pair of Levi's. Totally. Totally. Like, you always know, fix, you know, there's a flap. Oh, For God, years. Let's tuck that in. Yes. And that's me. I love that. My wife hates it. She's, you know, she's always correcting I'm the same way. I have a hard time getting rid of anything, pretty much. Um, Not a hoarder, but I just have certain things that I like and enjoy, and they're warm, and they feel good, and like my bases, and my pants, my belts. Totally. So what, tell me about the first first rig you had. First rig I had, um, actually started up with guitar, 
and I had a Marshall. I don't know what type Shoot, it was. You started out with a Marshall? I started out with a Marshall and then switched over the bass. And then I started with, back then it was, I think it was a PV. PV amp and a Sun amp, Sun Coliseum. Yeah, nice. But oh, I had dude. the um, the refrigerator cabinets, the Ampag 410s, heavy, um, tied up to then. And then I graduated to an SVT head. So Nice. <laughs> I had the complete package. Because <laughs> if you can't get bigger, <laughs> right? right? Oh, Lord. And that's kind of, I almost wanted to start with the gear we lost, you know, because that's, oh. that's, my thing i'm i'm that guy like i never had you know a continuous flow of money where if i saw something or if i needed to get the next thing i could right. just get it yeah cuz i you know a lot of times didn't have jobs so i if i had like a freaking heritage 50 watt marshall combo that i got in it's i don't know early to mid 70s i got first cool <clears throat> amp i ever had and i kept it and kept it and kept it and if I was a forward-thinking person back then when I was 22, I would have said, okay, this is something my kid should have, you know? Like, this should go to my grave. But then someone comes along and says, Mick, man, you got to hear 100 watt. They got the tighter <laughs> bottom. Everything's, you're going to love it, man. Right. So now I need a 100 watt Marshall. And what has to go? My beautiful, beloved 50 watt combo. And you can't, you can barely find them now. But, um, uh, you know, I used to set that thing on top of a slant half stack, and that was my rig. You yeah. know, I just plugged into the half stack, and if I needed the combo on it, on its own, I had it. So that probably ranks as my number one regret. Yeah. I know we could talk all night about gear we lost or traded back yeah. then. But remember, back then, in those days, there weren't um, like vintage-type amps or guitars that I remember. We just kind of traded for what was next and what was cool and that's funny yeah you're absolutely um, right i mean i'm sure there was a vintage market but back then i don't recall one i'm sure there was like you said but i don't recall it i mean i i had a um, 1970 75 or 78 i can't quite remember thunderbird it was the bicentennial oh, um, man. and i did when the, the new hamer bases came out i'm like oh those are cool you know yeah. white explorer I'll, i just traded it yeah now looking back you know yeah. But. Yeah, but who I mean again, I don't want to be that guy where I'm sitting here looking at oh god, I, I have to hang on even if I don't want to play it, even if it's useless to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's just and and that was sort of where I was with my little Ross compressor. And you might not know what I'm talking about, but in the 70s, and I don't even know, it's one of those pedals that just came to me. I don't even know how I got it. But the Ross compressor now, you go try to find one of these things, noisy as hell, not really even any good tone. It's just it worked for what I did because I didn't like distortion. I didn't want right. to add distortion to my signal, but I wanted sustain. So I would just crank up that compressor, and when I'd step on it, I could just go. It'd ring for days. It just would never stop. But uh, try to find one of those now. They're, the last one I saw was almost $500 wow. for a little cheap. $35 pedal back wow. in the 70s. Ross compressor. And now people are replicating them, you know. The right. same capacitor as a Ross compressor. Right. <laughs> it's like that um, Ibanez has this green pedal. The Tube Screamer? Yeah. Yeah. That seems to be the big 
or it was for a while. Oh, Everybody yeah. had to have that. Oh yeah, that certain one. I don't know what year it was. I want you know the whatever the wiring was in that mm-hmm. particular model, but yeah, all guitar players were looking for that. Yeah, there's some it. some component in it that that you know if you don't have that component, it's not the right tube screamer. Right. And to be honest with you, I I was familiar with with all the the rage about that, and that sort of made me not want to get one. But uh, yeah, I mean that's the kind of gear lust and envy that you know mm-hmm. i feel now when i especially when i had those things yeah. <laughs> but uh you know moving on from that i mean i remember when i was a kid i had to have a les paul i think i started out with my first guitar was a sakova which i've been trying to look up and i think i've found something that was similar but i don't really remember what my guitar looked like i don't think i've seen it online if you if you look up Sokova, I mean you'll get lost in a rabbit hole of Japanese guitar clones and right and original models, but I think this was sort of based on a uh oh no, don't let me forget this. What did the Ramones what did the guy in the Ramones use? Moss like almost like a Moss right kind of thing. Right. Anyway, that was my first guitar and then I had some two twelve amp it was almost like a crate, but I don't think that's what it was. Um, and then I moved on to the Marshall. But I remember ending up going f- to my first real guitar, which was a Telecaster Deluxe, which was a two-pickup humbucker configuration. And I know it had a, like a cigarette burn in it right. somehow, <laughs> on the, like on the body, not not on the headstock where you, know, you right. might stick your cigarette. It was on the body, and I'm thinking, how the hell did you even do that? But uh, I'll never forget, I, I wanted, I was into Led Zeppelin at that point. And I lived in Western New York, and, you know, the pickings are pretty slim back there. If you want a guitar, you pretty much, I don't know, there might be six guys out there selling guitars that you would want. It's not like L.A. where, right. you know, you can find what you want. So this guy had a Black Beauty, Black Les Paul, two pickup, it wasn't three. So I don't know if that even qualifies as a Black Beauty. But anyway, I drove out. And ended up trading my Telecaster for that. And yes, I got a Les Paul. This is great. This is great. I got it home. And it was what they call now the fretless wonder. So it was almost impossible to play for me. I mean, I pretty much hated every minute of it. (laughs) You know, it's like, yes, I have a Les Paul. Oh, I can't play it. It was weird. A fretless wonder? Yeah. I mean, the frets, I don't know if it was the fret material they used. I don't know if it was a degeneration of the frets or if they were just low to begin with. Mm. Maybe they put low frets in it thinking that it would be better right. to play for jazz. Easier to play. Easier to like play. Like a faster neck kind of. But I'm I'm that guy that, you know, I, I basically want to feel like the thing scalloped because I love right. those high jumbo frets. So that was... Uh, that was a pretty serious mistake in the early days. I was kind of lucky when I when I started playing bass. Like I said, I played guitar first, and I wasn't that good. I did have a white Les Paul at one point, though. Nice. And the I the only reason I bought it, well, I, I thought they were beautiful guitars, but Lindsey Buckingham, oh had yeah, a white Les Paul, and it had the cream binding on it, and like that was so nice. Yeah. And I I don't even I obviously traded it or sold it. I don't know where it went, but um, the first real band. I played in, in Northern California, there was a gentleman who was a phenomenal bass player. His name's Randy Cheek. Great player. He still lives in Northern California. And so I got a lot of help from him. He had a lot of gear. Um, 
he was very good telling you know teaching me little tricks yeah. and things with the bass that I I simply didn't know. So yeah. So I had a lot of help because I wasn't a bass player, and I started playing bass like a guitar player, for kind of like a rhythm guitar, you know. That's funny. I had uh, I had the same kind of situation. I had a mentor. His name was Steve Buvalt, and he's still I'm in touch with him a little bit here and there. Um, but back then, I just looked up to him because he had just a sweet vibrato. He could do that Michael Shanker stuff, right. and he knew all these cool licks. And he was a bass player that converted to guitar, and we played in bands together. and And he uh, he taught me a lot. Yeah. Taught me a lot back then, and I'm always grateful to him for, you know, sharing so much and being so generous with his time. You still keep me. In contact? Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. still uh, he's still producing and recording and doing his thing in West Virginia, as far as I can tell. Moving on from there, you know, it was just an endless endless stream of gear changing and i mean i had that marshall combo for a long time and then like i said i moved to 100 and and uh, i remember when we first started bullet boys i don't know even how this happened but i connected with this company i think they were back east maybe they were in maryland or something and i i ended up thinking that their amps were really good i don't know maybe they were called precision audio or something like that but they would mod marshall's Hmm. And I remember at the end of it all, like going, "What? Like these things suck. These things don't sound good at all. I wonder what the hell I ever saw in them, you know." <laughs> and uh, eventually, I hooked up with Bob Bradshaw, and he had a guy there who uh, modded a like an early '70s Marshall for me. And uh, I kind of wish it I could take it back now because it's kind of noisy and gainy, yeah. too gainy for me. I mean, back then it was great. And I, you know, I still pull it out every once in a while, but yeah, it's been pretty much all Marshalls for me since then. Right. Is that your go-to amp now still? Yeah, it is. I mean, I've got, uh, when we went to Japan, obviously we rented our back line and uh, on one of my cabinets was a 50-watt Marshall. And I remember getting in front of that thing in Japan. And of course, they were running it at 220 back then, right? Right. Or over there, I should say, whereas everything over here is 110. And, uh, boy, that thing was just like, it just was one of the coolest amps I ever really? played through. And so we ended up buying it and bringing it back. And I have it here today. And wow. it's, it's a nice little lamp. I wonder what it sounds like at 220, you know. Hmm. But, That's interesting. Uh, but that reminds me also of uh, one time when I was a kid playing in, I was in a Janis Joplin cover band. And uh, we ended up in Florida. Opening for the grassroots, whoever they were. I don't even know if any of those guys were in I the band. I remember that name. Yeah, yeah. And I, I couldn't tell you what hits they had, but the guy had a an original bass. I mean, this was in the late 70s, so it's not like they had reissues of the basement, but he had like a four, I think it was a 410 basement. And uh, I was able to plug into that and play our set. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, this is like the coolest yeah. sound I've ever had. Was it a tweed? Yeah, it was a tweed. Wow. And uh, I just, I'll never forget that night because, you know, I mean, how many kids, how many 20-year-old kids have, 18, 19-year-old kids have access to a, you know, a vintage basement? Or how many do now? Yeah. Even. Thank you. you. Thank you. I mean, you can buy a reissue for a thousand bucks, but, you know, it's got the printed circuit board and there's nothing hand-wired about it. Unless you're friends with Brian Setzer or Billy Gibbons and, yeah, Totally. Totally. And there's... I guess there's a guy, a guy named Alessandro, somewhere back east, and he's taking those new 
fender boxes like he'll take a brand new fender deluxe rip out all the guts and do a hand-wired version of it for you and wow back a brand new cab that's you amazing know, hand-wired deluxe with his you know capacitors and all his components in it but all wired like the original all wired like the original and wow i mean i was weird i was talking about it the other night i like it'd be nice to compare one of those to like a pristine deluxe but i don't think there are even any pristine amps anymore mm. because you know the capacitors break down they have right. to be re- recapped and you go spend twenty five hundred dollars on a fender deluxe and you don't know what you're getting the no. thing might be junk you know you don't know anymore i mean there's so many different brands and amps out there now though i mean the the selection and to, to really pinpoint what you want i mean you have to do a lot of research and that could change. Yeah. I mean, if you're anything like me, you know, if you hear a new tone, you sort of want to gravitate towards right. that. Like I'm, you know, I've always been, I've always been a Marshall guy, but I've always loved boogie saturation, you know, that sustain right. and that, that creamy distortion. I've always wanted to combine those two. And it seems like now, even though everybody makes a plexi, like I've got two plexis here. And that's what everybody's trying to mm-hmm. reproduce, right? But I still love the idea of a combination of nice, crystal clear, but overdriven guitar with a saturated, mm-hmm. you know, sort of screaming counterpart. And, you know, I'm still looking for that. I mean, I have a Bogner Shiva, which I like. It, it serves me well. It doesn't really go, you know, into that screaming right. overdrive kind of zone. You like the overdrive and the warmth. Like it all, yeah. That's what I'm. I and I'm that. You know, I'm probably no different than you know, thirty million other guys. <laughs> but I, uh, I'm still searching. You know, like yeah. even on the first Bullet Boys album, when people would literally come up to me and go, "Oh my God, dude, what do you use?" You know, well, I plugged some guitars into this modified Marshall. You know, Jose right. modified Marshall, and straight in. That's pretty much it. And Nothing like, between. <laughs> yeah, and that's how they always really? <laughs> like. In fact, the other day, some guy wrote and he goes like, "Wow, I kind of expected a little more than that." Something, you know? yeah, not be... just from your guitar right Total. into the amp. Huh? That's <laughs> it. That's what that. That's what the first album is, and, and uh, second album too. In fact, I've told this story before. On the first album, you know, when we got in there, it was kind of an intimidating experience for us with Ted Templeman and right. I can imagine. And, uh, wow, you know all this, all the work he's done, and all the great guitar players he's produced, and all the. I mean, just momentous guitar parts you know even doobie brothers you know what are you gonna show this guy that's new so um they rented this jose that i currently own and they got you know we dialed in a tone i'm not even sure if i helped dial it in it it was almost as if it just kind of settled into one place they said great 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 don't touch it Mm -hmm. but it was like way cleaner than i was used to and there wasn't a lot of sustain and it was just like a clean sound to me and you i'm, I'm a dirty about guy huh were you nervous about that a clean? extremely yeah extremely i just I wasn't used to it my because my rig was pretty overdriven in fact to get off on a tangent i'm rehearsing with uh king cobra one time at mates and jakey lee walks in i guess ozzy was there too and uh i'm kind of playing through my rig and he comes in and he goes dude that's really dirty man why don't you clean it up and i said yeah all right <laughs> Okay. Maybe I'll clean it up, you know. See ya. Yeah. And as soon as he walked out, it, of course, I didn't even consider it because it, that's what I like. Right, you know, right. I like that, that overdriven. That sound that you... Yeah, it was creamy and nice. Mm-hmm. And in retrospect, when I listened to his tone, it's like, no thanks. I'll stick yeah. with mine. 
But anyway, getting back to the story, it was intimidating making that first record because, you know, when I grabbed a note, there wasn't any forgiveness there. And in fact, it was funny mm. because somebody did a re- review online, or I wouldn't call it a review. I guess they were just making a comment in a forum about my sound. And the guy, he said, it's, it sounds like he's fighting his amps or his tone. And in a lot of ways, the guy was right, right you know, yeah. because I, and that's kind of how I've always been. I never really liked distortion pedals. I never even really used one. I've had a bunch. But I never used any distortion pedals during Bullet Boys. I just added delay and, and like I had a boogie. Mm-hmm. I had two dry marshals running at the center and then I had a stereo boogie setup running my effects. And I would just kick the boogie into overdrive and that would be my lead tone, you know? Right. Um, very nuanced by today's standards with all these pedals. I mean, you can, I mean, there are people that have six or seven different kinds of, of distortion and overdrive pedals. Yeah. So, um, that was my thing, and and you know the guy was right. I definitely was fighting to make sure that sustained, and I, you know I had to be pretty accurate for a guy that doesn't really care about being too accurate. That <laughs> was what I. Had well, I to can do. see where that'd be intimidating, especially when you're used to some sort of overdrive, and then you get into the studio to record, and all the situation around being in there with Ted Templeman. Yeah, and you've got a very clean sound that you're not used to. Right, and uh, then I imagine your hand just stiffened up. Yeah, and you were probably just holding that pick super tight. Well, I mean, the thing is that I didn't really change what I was doing, so it led to, you know, it led to some issues, you know. In fact, I remember one time we were running through, I think Crank Me Up is what it was, and, uh, you know, there's a pretty interesting chord that I play in there, but I missed it on this one take, and I remember Ted stopping and hitting the talk back. He goes, Mick, are you all right? You you know, did you hurt yourself on that? Like, you know, <laughs> you don't have to be a smart ass. <laughs> yeah, I know. I heard it too. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Exactly. I'll do it again if you're not careful. Well, it turned out great, though. I mean, all said and done, the album was a huge success. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, as I've stated before, I, I certainly would have done things a lot differently on that record. But, you know, as long as people enjoyed it and, you know, as long as other people think that tone is fun to listen to then that's the most important thing however when we got into the second record i basically just turned that thing up and that's that's closer to what the I'm, overdrive yeah, yeah yeah got a little more dirty a little more gain a little more creaminess to me you know i mean that first record almost sounds kind of brittle to me in times mm-hmm. you know but the second one was a lot more comfortable for me to play on who produced that that was ted yeah, Ted did all three of wow. our Bullet Boys records. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. He stayed on board for the whole trio. So anyway, that brings us to now. I still have that Jose. I still have that 50 Plexi. I've got the Bradshaw modified Marshall that I uh, was talking about earlier. And I still, basically, if I'm doing a guitar part, I'm plugging straight in unless I'm printing a delay. I have TC2290, but I'm not using that. My NASA rack isn't together right now, but I have a Strymon Timeline that I use for delay, which is a really cool instrument. It's got a lot of great presets, and it's also very configurable. The only problem I have with it, when I'm using it live, there's a selector knob that is right above the on-off switch for Mm -hmm. this delay, Right. and it's almost impossible to miss. So... When I'm turning my, this delay on and off, I almost invariably hit you this hit other it. button, which puts it into a bank, hmm. which completely changes the delay. And, 
you know, it's hard to get it back. And then you hit the bank. Part of the design. Next uh, thing you know, you're not playing guitar. You're like, yeah, exactly. It's a design flaw. But it's a wonderful delay for uh, any overdrive needs, which are pretty rare in my case. I have a Bogner Wessex, which has a Rupert Neve designed uh, component in it. I think it's cool. I like it. It's uh, a little... uh, a little different from what I used to use, which was a vintage Expandora, which is another paddle that I have no idea how I came by. Right. It just appeared in our box one time, and I'm like, what is this? Oh, it's just a vintage, hard-to-find <laughs> distortion pedal. Or just pedal. showed up at the door. Just huh? showed up at the door somehow. And I love that pedal, but I ended up breaking the switch on it and figured it would be a pretty easy repair, but it, it wasn't because it has to be like an exact, switch from the 80s which you know that amazes me they can't replicate that somehow with all the technology out there yeah i don't understand that it's pretty wild yeah it's pretty wild but i uh i got to a point where i didn't want to use it because i figured you know at some point i was going to break it and there wouldn't be any more of those switches but it's cool it's a little bright kind of uh you know it doesn't really retain the body which is the reason that i never liked using overdrive pedals in the first place because it always seemed like the low end just kind of sucked up and got compressed and i i could Mm. never i could never go for that for whatever reason right i mean i'm not that much of a purist but that uh that was just too much for me to bear (laughs) where's the pedal now uh, my my expandora yeah sitting over there in that drawer uh, safely tucked away got it. i might have to break it out at some point but uh yeah i mean that's really it for me i am pretty basic here in red cake digital my studio i uh i use a 421 uh right next to a 57 for the most part sometimes i'll put up a 414 or uh my mojave ma200 for uh like a little room mic but unless i'm using that roomy sound, I don't, I don't bother. Mm-hmm. I don't put it up every time. I just like close mic it. My cabs, I've got one with green backs, one with black backs, another one with vintage thirties. You know, I sort of switch between those, and that's kind of it. Direct in, man. Yeah, you've got an interesting bass, custom made. I've got a couple of them. Um, the one made by uh, Grove Guitars. It's a, um, it's a copy of a Fender Fifty One P. And what's unique about it, it's a um, crate top, they call it. The top of the base is made from a crate from uh, an explosive company, (laughs) (laughs) which is kind of cool because it it says explosive across the front of dynamite. But this particular company was located at 40 Rockefeller Plaza, and it has the address across the front, too. So I really like that base a lot. Wow, I don't blame you. Yeah, it's got a nice tone. It has that old, um, you know, telly. Fender yeah, type yeah. tone to it, which took me a while to get used to. It's uh-huh. a little bit thin or a little too hot, so I yeah. had to change the pickups out in it to make it not so hot, not so boomy, because mm-hmm. it would kind of muddy up a bit. And I've got a couple Thunderbirds; both were custom made as well. Nice. Um, I, I've I've had original Thunderbirds throughout the years, and I wish I still had them back. But there's a gentleman that makes um, custom made Thunderbirds um, type bases. I have two of them. And I've got a Fender P as well, and a few others. An Italia that I'm, I use quite often, actually. It's nice. It's semi-hollow. Got an F-hole in it. Nice. So, um, has real nice tone jazz pickups. Yeah, nice array. Yeah. So, of course, I don't have enough. But, yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. It's like for every, uh, for every bass you get, there's one you still don't have. But, um, all right. Well, 
what do you say we take a little break and uh, we'll be right back with the scratch cast Experiencing Scratchcast with Nick Sueda and Craig Pepe. Look for Scratchcast on SoundCloud and our Facebook pages and tell your friends. Welcome back. The Scratch Cast is on again. Cheers. Cheers, brother. Freshly loaded mm-hmm. with a Modelo. 805 on this side. I'm an IPA guy. I know we've uh, we've talked about this being, how did we want to do it? Music, hockey, and beer, not necessarily in that order. Right. I don't know how much hockey we'll get to today, but I'm going to the game tomorrow. Sabres. You are. Your uh, sabers are in town. Yeah, and I have to sit next to my wife as the Kings probably freaking decimate <laughs> them. I'm just hoping that they pull one out, you know, like they have their night. The sabers? The sabers. Yeah. And the Kings are down because, I mean, it sucks right. to sit, to be the only guy in the arena sitting when the Kings score. Yes. But it's great to be the only guy standing when the Sabres <laughs> score. Are, do you wear the Sabres jersey? When you I'm going to wear... No, I don't do jerseys. No. Um, I have a, a bunch. You mean you don't wear your autographed jersey? <laughs> 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 oh, boy. I have Rob Ray. Do you? Uh, yeah. Um, 32? 32. Ah. Yeah. And it's funny because I back then I didn't... You know, I was at Jill Perot and right. French Connection right. and all those hot scorers, right? That was kind of where I wanted to be. In fact, I've, 11's always been my number. But now, in retrospect, knowing what, and we talked about it on another episode, what the, the enforcers go through in they, mm. their gig, you know? And I, I have a total appreciation for Rob now. I mean, in fact, I bought his book. And uh, when I go back and I watch his fights, because I never really thought of him as, as a heavyweight, you know? Oh, he, he was. knocked some fucking guys out. He was a definite heavyweight. And Holy he, for crap. For how many years he did that, too? And the only time I ever saw him really get caught was uh, Tony Twist, busted his orbital bone. Yeah, I think I remember that. Well, you know, everybody ages, as do those guys. Yeah. They get to the end of their career and all these young guns coming up. Yeah, and next thing you know, it's like, holy crap, dude, I don't want to fight you tonight. No. Like, I just want to go home. You're older, you're slower. Yeah. Um, I'm getting three minutes of ice time and, like, I got to spend some of it fighting you. Give me a break. The Sabres had a defenseman that I really liked, Schoenfeld. Is it Schoenfeld? Jimmy. Jim, Jim Schoenfeld. Yeah. And Number uh, six. he was a, a big guy, a rough player, but a good player. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he wasn't uh, by any means a, a fighter, but he would. I, I think everybody kind of would back in those yeah, days when they needed of, to. A lot of Boston. Yeah. Fights. But I, I, I remember Schoenfeld and I admired his style of play mm-hmm. and his haircut. He had the coolest hair when he. Yeah. Played. He did a record. <laughs> yeah. Did he really? Yeah, he did. <laughs> he might not want to be remembered for it. Okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if you look up uh, Jimmy Schoenfeld, he's, uh, he's got a record. I can't remember what it's called. It's online. I found it one night and I started listening to it and it's, you know, mostly painful. Right. I remember that era. Rick Dudley. 
Yeah, Rick Dudley, who still, uh, Pete, there are a ton of Sabres fans who would love to have him back in the organization. Right. I'll you know? bet. And they had another Bob Kelly, Bob Battleship Kelly. Was he part? Maybe I'm mm. thinking of a different Kelly. No, you might be right. I don't. That thing doesn't the Sabres. resonate. I know they loved uh, Larry Playfair. Oh, yeah. Who was yeah. a big guy and in spite Huge of his fan. name, kicked a lot of ass, yes. too. The Kings had him for a while. Oh, right okay. Right at the end of his career. Yeah. The Kings uh, brought him over. And the Kings had somebody else from the Sabres, too. I can't remember. Or did... Where did Marcel go? He went to Detroit, huh? After... Uh, yes, he did. Yeah. Okay. I think some oh, other guys from the remember. Sabres went to Detroit, too. In fact, Danny, I think Danny Gare ended up over there at one point. Where did Rick Martin go? He was Rick Martin was part of the French Connection, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pro, yeah, they have a Rick statue Martin. out in front of the, the rink. And who was on the other side? Rene Robert, Rick Martin, and Gilles Perot in the center. Yeah. Do you remember, maybe you're not old enough, the Fog game where they played in the oh, yeah. Fog? Played the Flyers. Right. And I still can picture that goal. I mean, it's, I don't, I wasn't at the rink seeing it, but there's uh, video footage of, it's got to be Rick Martin. He had such a heavy shot. It's coming down the right wing. Yeah. Blast it right past him. It took him to game, maybe game six. I think they lost in game six. Right. Was Scotty Bowman the coach? I don't know if he was the coach then or not, because he didn't have a very illustrious career with the Sabres. No, but he lived in the area for quite a while. Yeah, he still might, for that matter. Yeah. In fact, I think he does still live there, because because I know the new management was trying to... There was talk of bringing him in. Right. I don't know if he wanted any part of it. Pretty attached to Detroit, I guess. Or what, Chicago now? His kids in Chicago? Chicago or Detroit, either. I, I would think more so... Detroit. Yeah. I don't know. So tomorrow night. So tomorrow night it's on. I'm either going to, uh, well, I can't really win because if (laughs) if the Sabres beat them, you know, I got to ride home with my wife. Right. And obviously if the Sabres lose, of course now. And she has to ride home with you. People are talking about the tank, you know, eight points from 29th. Oh, I mean, I don't know who the new, you know, the first, uh, the first pick's going to be or anything about him. I mean, you know, the Austin Matthews kid in Toronto, he uh, he seems to be the real deal. He is the real deal from what I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody posted I mean, uh, some warm-up footage of him, and he's pretty sick. Comes out in his first game and gets not only a hat trick, but four goals. Yeah. It sucks, you know, for the Sabres because, you know, it's freaking Oilers, man. I mean, you've got to admit, when you get like four, not first-round picks. Right. First overall picks in six years, you got at some point when you're a little old buffalo and and you're just hoping for one. You got to play worse. Yeah, <laughs> I I mean, jeez, oh man. But they, I think, I think the Sabers bottomed out. I don't know. They were if they weren't the worst team in the league that year, they were the second, and the Oilers were like the fourth or something. Really? Yeah, and they and they still got all those, and picks? they still won that first wow. overall pick. Huh. In fact, they might have been third. Well, that's what the Kings are kind of feeling right now too. I mean, after you win two Stanley Cups within four years, you know your draft picks aren't going to be right. That yeah, high, and they need to restock now. Kind of seeing that at this point. You yeah, know? they need more speed. Well, they might have that opportunity at the end of this season. Yeah, but they got to you know. Unfortunately, I think that heavy game is necessary now. I mean, obviously the Ducks with their cup, I mean, they just, you know, were kind of like the new version, 
you know, the the more finessed version of the Broad Street Bullies. But, you know, you got to have a pretty heavy game. Yeah, you do. Especially on the four check. Some big boys out there that can skate really well. Yeah, yeah. And then you have your speed guys that you're addition, but you, I mean, you can't spend time in your own end. You got to get it out and no motor. The Kings aren't as big as they were last year or the year before. They've kind of gone down in size and their age is catching up to them. Yeah, as Green's well. gone. Yeah. They pretty much ditched all their big bruisers. I mean, they haven't. Who was the last battler? I mean, we don't have to go back oh, to. Gosh. Matt. Uh, Matt Johnson. Matt Johnson. <laughs> he came to a session we did one time. Did he? Yeah. Sweet kid, man. I, I think it. he still lives here. All right. I, Good think, I think some of the guys on the Sunday skate that I play with. Moose. The moose. And they talk about him. Yeah, we saw Moose. I think they still see him skating in, at uh, El Segundo at the rink there. What happened? Did he, did he like sucker Booga Boom or something? Apparently that's um, yeah, the talk. Yeah, kind of went down from there. Yeah, know. yeah, that was pretty bad. But they but, got this, uh, the Kings have this kid in. Andrioff, you know, who who drops him. But, I mean, he's he's a lightweight by well, most standards. Well, Clifford, they have Clifford. Yeah, Clifford, Clifford can who, drop him. Who can throw him pretty well. But he's kind of cut back. He used to be one of those um, all-offense fighters who would just grab and start swinging. But he's had a few concussions, so he's a lot more cautious, a lot more defensive in the style that yeah, he Yeah, he you know, so. tries to grab that, grab yeah, that shirt. He'll wait, on. he'll wait it out instead of just being yeah all out. He'll... Play with he'll fight with more defense. That's funny. You can uh, tell because the guys are you know they straight arm yeah. the shoulder and kind of keep their head away until they can sort of see out right. of the periphery like an opening. Right. As opposed to like we were talking about earlier, Rob Ray. Oh, those guys. All bets were off, man. I mean, he would just stand there and toe to toe. He and Tai Domi, when they have like fifteen fights. Yeah, and you know it's funny. I watched a bunch of those, and Rob, you could say one. The a majority portion, of those, yeah. which I wouldn't have guessed, because Ty's a tough freaking yeah. kid, man, back then. His son was in Los Angeles last night for the uh, Coyotes. Oh, yeah, that's right. And I think so he got a, the go-ahead goal. He's a nice player, man. Yeah. He's a nice Good little player. player. I've seen a lot of what he does, and, you know, he'll, Ma- he's, he's got edge. Yeah. He'll drop him, too. Yeah. Wow, we're getting well, in some hockey. You should have some fun tomorrow Cheers, night. man. Cheers. I wish I was going, but... Can't make it tomorrow. I wish I was skating. I gotta get back to skating. Well, I know, I know. Uh, Sunday morning. Gotta set that alarm. So. All right. Well, there's our hockey. We talked about getting back to some guitars too. I know. Uh, you know, I've sort of been associated with uh, Les Pauls for a long time, and and rightly so. I I know in uh, my days in King Cobra, uh, I used my Strat a lot. I in fact, I even used my first new guitar which was a carvin dc 150 which was kind of a dream guitar for me because it was like a double cut not a melody maker but like a les paul it reminded me of of like a a les paul special you know double cut and the old style and i I just loved that so i played that carvin a lot and then uh i also had my jackson star which was custom made for me they um i didn't really want a bolt-on Charvel star, which now, of course, I would die to have mm-hmm. one. And I've been looking for one. And if you happen to know somebody who's got a Charvel star they want to sell, uh, look me up. I had to make a, a neck through star, and it's, you know, it's pointed and beveled, right. and it, it's a little dated for me now. I don't know how much I'd play it. 
But when I listened to the Bullet Boys records that I did with that guitar, mm-hmm. it's freaking astounding. That cut? guitar is, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it doesn't sound like any other guitar I've used. Wow. And I've, on our records, and you might be surprised to hear this, but on Smooth Up Inya, that's a James Tyler Strat that he brought over to the studio. And I used that quite a bit. That's really? That's a really good sounding guitar. Now, I would have thought that was your Les Paul. Yeah. Yeah, most people mainly from the video associate but. yeah that guitar yeah. with that song. Although, uh, like I said, James Tyler was uh, kind enough to to loan me this really sort of cool, almost multicolored Strat. Well, it was almost multicolored. It was multicolored. That's on Smooth Up. I can't remember much other than I know that I uh, I ended up buying. You were talking about the white Les Paul. I right. I got one for my tech, Dale Meekins at the time. I uh, got him a white Les Paul, and he let me use that on Shoot the Preacher Down. So I know that's... And I think I used that guitar on F-sharp 9, too, in the first record. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Les Paul, my, I basically started uh, Bullet Boys with a, a Les Paul Pro, a Deluxe, which came with uh, two P90s in it. And I ended up putting a Seymour Duncan mini humbucker in the bridge, kept the P90 in the neck, and uh, that sort of got us through, you know, the early stages of Bullet Boys. I did all our early shows with that guitar, did our demos with it. That was the only Les Paul I wow. had at the time. I took think, it on the road? I, yeah, I took it on the road. I still, I had my Strat back then. I had the Jackson, obviously, which I'm I'm not even sure if I ended up playing that in the early days. It might have been a while for me to take that out. Then I ended up uh, doing a deal with Gibson, getting uh, a couple nice gold tops, I've got, uh, I don't know what you'd even call it. It's almost like a wine burst. I'm not really up yeah. on all the... But I've got, you know, since then I've got right more standards. And... Well, I've heard the stories about the SG. Oh, boy. Yeah, we don't have to talk about that. <laughs> Sorry if you're listening, Gibson. It's no longer... One of the guitars passed. Mm-hmm. But it had a, it had a beautiful brief life mm-hmm. in front of a lot of people. <laughs> Made a lot of folks happy. Yeah, I probably saw a lot more people in some it guitars. Made, so, if anything, it made people smile and enjoy the show. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Um, so anyway, that's uh, that kind of brings us up to. Let me turn around and look here. Your Explorer, which rack. I see a lot. Yeah, that's a beautiful guitar. I, I do like it. I love that. Hi, Bowie. That's my uh, that's my buddy. We were in Seattle with Cinderella and Winger on that tour. And some kid came up and uh, he said, hey, man, would you be into an Explorer? Hell yeah, I would be. (laughs) And I don't know if I hooked up with him the next time we were there or he went and got it and brought it back. But uh, it's a 77 Explorer and uh, I bought it right then and there. No negotiating. Just let me have it. I love those. And it's funny, too, because when I was, uh, well, maybe it's not funny, but I'll tell the story anyway. When I was much younger, uh, a buddy of mine ended up with an Explorer. And this is in the 70s, so it had to be, I don't know if it was a 75, it might have been a 76. But he got an Explorer that is virtually like that one. And uh, he let me take it out on a little tour I did. And I was in Pittsburgh one night. And, you know, things get a little crazy. You're having fun. (laughs) And you're sliding the neck of the Explorer up the mic stand and the next thing I know, it clips something and takes a huge chunk of the fretboard out. Oh. Like a big old, you oh, know, no. like pinky fingernail size chip of the finger. And I'm thinking, oh, fuck, man. My poor friend. 
Anyway, I handed him back his guitar. Right. And I'm like, sorry, sorry. dude. <laughs> Note to self, don't loan me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, here's Rick's bar. Oh, no. So that was bad. But anyway, uh, he was cool with it. And hopefully we're still friends. Hi, Brian. <laughs> Explorers, I'm sorry, but Explorers, V's, and Thunderbirds, to me, nothing says rock and roll like those. I totally body agree. Styles. I totally mean. agree. And I can't remember where I first saw one. It might have been, uh, might have been, was it Ricky Medlock with Blackfoot? Mm. He's I an don't explorer know. player. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, he still plays explorers. Thing. Hell yeah. And I, I can see why. I mean, truthfully, there isn't a better feeling guitar. You know, like I can strap that thing on and it just feels like home to me. Plane wise, the neck. Yeah, and yeah, just, and yeah. just ergonomically, you know, right. where it sits and, and where it yeah, you doesn't rub on you. You can't do that with a V, of course. But, oh, no. I mean, they look cool, but. Right. As far as right. sitting down and playing. Yeah. I could, well, even standing up, I could never, I just don't have that feel for a yeah. V. But with that Explorer, every time I put it on, I mean, it's, the, the thing is, it's a little dark. It doesn't really have, as my wife would say, it doesn't have the zazz of like a Les Paul. You know, nonetheless, it's just, it's like the best feeling guitar yeah. when I throw it on. I've got my Les Paul Pro. I've got a Telecaster that uh, Fender was gracious enough to give to me, and that thing is a beaut. I like that Tele. I think one night we were tracking with it here. Yep. And it has a great tone. Yeah. It's I, I love it. beautiful tone. I never would have been a Tele fan. Again, I mean, I don't know what I was drinking back then, <laughs> but I, I barely remember we'll how go. it even came to me. Why would they... Even give me it's it's almost like it just showed up right like hey Mick they gave you a wow. telly because I I'm not a telly cat I don't right. I never would have thought about having one but when I got it and I think what they said is it's one kind of body and then like a new neck or something because it's not like the lacquered mm-hmm. is, it, is it lacquer or nitrocellulose whatever they coat right. the necks with it's right. not like that it's almost like a old Charvel neck that thing just felt. Very good to me. It sounds amazing. I remember coming over here, and I think I even made a comment like, wow, you have a telly. <laughs> I know. Who would have thought? So <laughs> then uh, there's my 64 neck with a 65 body. I don't know. Norm's guitars. I love mm. you guys. But I don't know what you were doing when you pieced this guitar together. Whatever you did, it's great because I love it. It's one of my favorite guitars ever. I bought it. It was seafoam green. Then it got painted something else. And then it got painted this kind of candy apple blue but uh yeah what's the first thing you do when you buy a vintage strat you go bore holes in it and put a floyd <laughs> right. on it right and you did that no, I question did that. mark okay right away <laughs> right away and then of course there's my uh silver burst which mm-hmm. i might have told the story or maybe i haven't when i was a kid there was a band back east called Moki cole they were a regional band and they were doing their originals but they also did cover sets and from that band spawned another band called the Paul Pope Band. And they were great. They did the same thing, covers, had some originals or whatever. But anyway, I went to see them one night, and this kid that they had playing guitar had a silver burst. And when I saw it, I think I was stunned. I, I think that I never imagined a Les Paul could look like that. Anyway, I immediately said, oh, my God, I have to have one of those. But, of course, in 1979, there's not much of an Internet. Right. And if there was, I didn't have access to it. And certainly through the 80s, there wasn't much of an internet. So I didn't really, unless I ran into one, mm-hmm. and I'm sure I did, but what happens with those guitars is over time, they turn green. They don't 
Really? They start to when they age, they the color. take on a completely different wow. characteristic, which is not why I want a silver burst. I don't <laughs> want a green burst. I want a silver burst. <laughs> you want silver. So, you know, throughout these ensuing decades, I'm not actively searching for one, but I certainly didn't come across it. It's on your mind. Yeah, yeah, it's on my mind. And and so Gibson Custom Shop releases a version of the silver burst and I had to bust out the puppy eyes on my wife. Yeah. I had to. You oh, know. honey! <laughs> but I didn't it's press it. It's always been a dream uh, of mine, and I just expressed it. One of these days. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, thanks, Gibson. I'd love to have my deal back since I bought so many custom shop guitars. And then uh, there's the the back room where everything else is. And I, I would like to talk about my Stevens, my Michael Stevens guitar. It's a Les Paul bass, beautiful guitar. It's cool because the neck pickup. As you may have seen, I think we tracked with that one night too, is offset, um, which you don't see very often. Mm. And uh, just a gorgeous guitar oh, yeah. with coil taps. We did one night. I, re- I remember that. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And it's uh, it's a, a real piece of work. I mean, the top is, is probably the most beautiful guitar top that I have. I mean, yeah. I certainly don't have anything even remotely close. But I've been playing that a lot. And uh, we can call it there because otherwise we're going into banjos and <laughs> lap slides and, and picks. You know, and... The, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we have yeah, a good time. Gear talk. We well, have a good time. This well, is people, what it's about. I totally agree. You know, people do genuinely ask, and they're they're concerned or concerned. They're interested and sometimes concerned. They're very interested about what uh, what I've been playing, and yeah. I don't talk about it much. So here we are, got a mouthful now. All right, bud. Well. Well, this was um, very informative, entertaining. I learned stuff. I hope so. I did. I hope so, because uh, I think we're pretty much at the point where any more gear talk and people are going to start nodding off. (laughs) Anyway, thanks for listening to the Scratchcast. Scratchcast was produced and engineered by Mick Sueda at Red Cake Digital in Los Angeles, California. Find us at iTunes, SoundCloud, and on Facebook. Crushing out of town, leaving nothing in. Drinking wine now, cause you never know when requiem is just for you.